Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon to take your calls. If you want to call in with questions about the Bible, about Christianity, maybe you have disagreements with the host, you want to call in about that, you're always welcome to do so during this hour. The number is 844-484-5737. If you'd like to call in, looks like we have one line open at the moment. It's 844 844- 484-5737. A few announcements. One is that uh, day after tomorrow, Wednesday night, we have our monthly Zoom meeting once a month, the first Wednesday of each month, actually. We have a Zoom meeting at 7 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. Now, people from all over the country and sometimes all over the world join us for that. And it's obviously a different time since it's live, different time in different time zones but uh, if, if you can calculate from, to where you live from uh, Pacific time, it's at 7 o'clock p.m. Pacific time every first Wednesday of the month, uh, with rare exceptions. And this is not an exception. We have it coming up this Wednesday night. You may want to join us. Uh, you can find out how to do that by going to our website, thenarrowpath.com, and under announcements you'll find uh, login information about that. Now, is that login information changing, or is that it's already posted? Okay, so we have new. We have uh, if you have the old login information, uh, the host who usually hosts it is not going to be available. He's going to be uh, in the air traveling, and uh, someone else will be hosting it. So there's a different login than usual. But you can find it posted at thenarrowpath.com under announcements. Now, uh, beginning this Thursday. I'll be speaking five successive days in the Phoenix area, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, and a week from today, Monday. Uh, That's the 8th through the 12th. Now, I'll be speaking in Peoria, Scottsdale, Gilbert, Goodyear, and Maricopa. And if you live in any of those areas or want to travel to any of those areas on the uh, appropriate days, uh, the information about what I'll be speaking about, uh, where the place is, how to contact them, what time it is, and so forth, on which days. All that is also posted at our website, thenarrowpath.com, under the tab that says Announcements. All right, enough of that kind of thing. Let's talk to Jim from Round Rock, Texas. Hi, Jim. Good to hear from you. Hey, Steve. Good to hear from you, brother. Um, yeah. I have a question I have a question from a, a passage that is often used by the Oh, they're sometimes referred to as the name it, claim it uh, folks, uh-huh. but it's found, it's found in the Gospel of Mark and uh, eleven twenty-five. Yeah, eleven twenty-five and uh-huh. well, really twenty-two to twenty-five or so. But um, I just was wondering your your thoughts or your take on it because it's it's just often used in the sense of if you just have faith and don't doubt. Uh, you, you just hang on until you get what you're asking for. And, in fact, you don't even – you just have to believe that you've already gotten it. And, it, right. and verse 24 especially kind of lends to that thought. Right. And I just wondered if you could shed some, some light on it. Right. In uh, Mark 11:22, especially through 24, Jesus said, uh, Have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says this mount be removed and be cast into the sea – and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things which he says will come to pass, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, 
Whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. Now, there's obviously a, a measure of hyperbole here because he talks about moving mountains with your faith, and we've never known of anyone to do so. Even even some great men of faith, people who are very uh, remarkable for the faith. I mean, some people call Smith Wigglesworth the apostle of faith, and yet we never heard of him uh, speaking to a mountain, having it thrown into the sea. Uh, the apostle Paul never did so. Um, you know, Jesus never did so. Um, in fact, there's no reason to believe that God would ever want anyone to do so, because moving mountains is usually unnecessary, and um, and uh, you know, and God probably has the mountains pretty much where He wants them to be already. The point being that there are Im- seemingly impossible things, which if you know, if it is in the will of God, and if a person has adequate faith to to trust God. Uh, those things can be accomplished. And it, it, it all begins by saying have faith in God. It doesn't say have faith in the results of a mountain being removed or in the results of anything else you're praying for. You're not, you're not praying with faith in a result. You're praying with faith in God, in a person. Now, if you have faith in a person, it, it means, among other things, that you trust that person to do what is right in response to your request. Just like if a child has a father who is a good father and a faithful father, uh, that child knows that he can ask anything of his father, and his father will either grant that request, or if the father, in his greater wisdom, realizes that it's a very stupid request and harmful to grant, uh, the father will, will not grant it. But that doesn't mean that he's unfaithful. It means that he's wise and he reserves the right to veto things. Now, if, if I were to speak to, uh, just go up to a mountain and command it, in the name of Jesus to be cast into the sea, and I, I screwed up my my faith uh, uh, valve, uh, you know, full measure. <clears throat> I I frankly have no reason to believe in this passage that it would really happen precisely that way because I believe this is hyperbole, and Jesus did mm-hmm. use hyperbole from time to time. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew chapter seven, "Seek and you shall find; knock and it'll be open to you." You know, ask and it'll be given to you. And he says, for everyone who seeks, finds. And everyone who asks, uh, you know, it's given to him. And everyone who knocks, the door is open to him. Now, okay, well, is, that, is that literally true? Every person who's ever asked God for something, it, it happened? Uh, well, no, because this, this is very commonplace for Jesus to use hyperbole. He often makes it very clear in the context, you know, how these statements are to be uh, qualified. Because in Matthew 7 there, the next thing he says, which of you fathers, if your son asks him for bread, you're going to give him a stone. If he asks you for a fish, you're going to give him a serpent. He says, if you earthly fathers, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to his children Who you know, when they ask? Now, in other words, if a child is asking for bread, that's a good thing. And his father will give him bread, not a stone. Uh, if he's asking for fish, that's a good thing. And his father will give him fish and not a serpent. But what if the son thinks he's asking for fish, and really what he's asking for is a serpent? Well, hopefully God will say, uh, sorry, that's not a good thing. I, I promised I'll give good things to those who ask. I mean, yes, everyone who asks shall receive and so forth within the perimeters of the qualifications that are in the very passage. We have to be, think, they have to be things that are good uh, because a, a loving father will say no to children when they ask for things that are not good. And that means that everything that that we read about prayer in Scripture has got to be qualified by the principles found throughout the teaching of Jesus and, and the teaching of the apostles. See, um, 
whatever you ask when you pray, well, that sounds rather unlimited. Even maybe mm-hmm. if you're asking for a mountain to be cast in the sea, just believe it happened and it'll happen. No, that's not really what he's promising here. It sounds like it because if we take this statement apart from the context and apart from other statements Jesus made, which provide a holistic uh, fabric of, of teaching about prayer, then we realize that this is qualified. In this case, it's qualified by what he says in verse 22. Trust God about this. Trust God. Uh, you know, when you come to God, you're not just seeking a result. If you are, then you're not doing what he said to do. When you come to God, you're trusting him to do what is good. You're asking him to do something that you think is good. And you're trusting that if it is good, that's exactly what he'll do. But you also trust him enough to say, you know, if this isn't a good thing, then don't do it. I mean, Jesus himself prayed that way, didn't he? I mean, he said, Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. In other words, you know, I'm about to be crucified. That sounds like a really, uh, a real bummer. You know, I really would like to see that not happen. If it's your will, Mm -hmm. you know, if possible, don't let that happen. He's praying for that. But he says, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Which means that if this isn't really a good request, if your will sees something better in me being crucified than in me being not crucified, Well, let's do it your way. And that's the spirit of anyone who prays in the name of Jesus. Because when we pray in the name of Jesus, as we're told to do, when you do anything in someone else's name, you're doing it as their agent. You're doing what you believe they would do. They've they've authorized you to act in their place, to act as they would act. Just like when you have somebody uh, make investments in your name or something like that. If you have a a financial uh, manager or something like that, you know, uh, the manager of a store acts in the name of the owner who hires them and, and uh, you know, does what he believes the owner would want done and what the owner would do. When we, he's acting in the name of another, when you, when you do something in the name of someone else, you are consciously desiring to do what they would want done and to be a good steward or a good agent uh, who's been entrusted with that responsibility. And that's what it means to pray. When we pray, we're not just asking for what we want. Uh, we might sometimes be, but there's no guarantees for that. We are only allowed to pray and expect results if we pray in Jesus' name. Now, this particular passage in Mark 11 doesn't mention that fact, nor does the passage in Matthew 7. But a number of mm-hmm. passages in John 14 through 16 say that. And so when we take any one passage on prayer, we can't take it in isolation mm. because Jesus taught his disciples mm. a holistic teaching about prayer. And, mm-hmm. you know, every time the subject comes up, he doesn't say all the things that he said Mm -hmm. at different times, you know, Mm -hmm. just like, you know, sometimes I'll be asked on this program because I've been doing it for 27 years. I'll be asked a question I've been asked many times before. I'll I'll give an answer that's agreeable with all the other answers I gave, but I won't always give all the same details because it's a long Mm -hmm. subject. You know, I'll give some of the, some details in one answer and some in another. Jesus, that with teaching teaching prayer, he, he spent 30, he spent three years with his disciples teaching them about many things, including prayer. And every time he said something about it, he expected them to bear in mind the whole, the whole subject that he's, he's talked about elsewhere. So if I'm praying something in Jesus' name, that means I'm acting as his agent praying for what I truly believe he wants done. But I also trust him that he'll veto it if, if it's mm-hmm. something he doesn't want done. And therefore, mm-hmm. Jesus would never actually mean to say, and he doesn't even in these passages, that you can just pray any irresponsible thing you want to, any selfish thing you want to. Just believe it's going to happen and it'll happen. That, that turns prayer into a magic wand or a genie in a lamp, which is not what God is. 
God is a king. We are his subjects, and we are you know, authorized to use his name to carry out his purposes as he would do. Uh, he doesn't give us an Aladdin's lamp and say, your wish is my command. Now, a verse like this taken by itself sounds that way, and that's exactly how the word of faith people love to take it. You know, he, he just said you can, you can write your own ticket with God. That's, that's the name of a book that Kenneth Hagin wrote. You can write your own ticket with God, and, and this is a verse that is used. This, whatever you pray for, just believe you have it and you have it. Well, not, not unqualified. This is qualified by all the other things Jesus taught on the subject of prayer. Uh, he doesn't contradict himself in one place over what he said somewhere else. So I think that, you know, if someone wants to take that passage and say, this proves what I want it to say, I would just say, um, well, that has to fit into the whole panoply of what Jesus taught about prayer in general. And, uh, and he is certainly suggesting that if we're asking for something in his name, that we know to be his will, uh, and that, it is, that we believe it's his will to do it at this present time, then we should believe that, that those prayers will be answered, just as we ask them. So anyway, Jim, that's, that's, how I, that's how I approach every subject, not just prayer, but the subject of any subject Jesus taught about. If he taught on it more than once, I figure that it, you need to take the whole teaching of Jesus on a subject and synthesize it. That takes a little bit of brain power, I'm afraid, and there are some uh, people who don't want to, um, you know, invest too much of that in their religion. But uh, we really do need to be responsible and not say, well, I, I, got, I got this verse here that Jesus said, and that, that cancels everything else he said. No, it, it doesn't. It, it uh, complements everything else he said. That's what I would say. God bless you, Jim. I, I appreciate that call. It's a good question. Uh, Jason from Tacoma, Washington, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, this is Jacob. Oh, hi, Jacob. I, it says Jason on my screen. Go ahead. Okay. Um, can you please comment from the New King James Version on Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, basically verse 15, about the one new man? Sure. I'd be glad to. Okay, uh, now does it have to be the New King James? That's, that happens to be what I'm using, but I just wondered if there's something in the New King James uh, that you find different than other versions have. Um, I, I just didn't find one new man in my New American Standard Bible. Oh, it doesn't say one new man there? Oh, shame on them. Okay, um, because it does say that in the Greek. Okay, so you said verses 11 through 15? 11 through 18, but basically verse 15 is where it says one new man. Yeah, yeah. Paul is here obviously writing to his readers as Gentiles who have come to believe. And he's writing in a milieu where there was still a great deal of controversy in the church as to whether uh, Gentiles stood on the same footing with Jews in the body of Christ. That is, a believing Jew and a believing Gentile are equal. We know that to be true. But that was still something debated in the first generation of Christians because Gentiles coming to, to worship the God of Israel was a new phenomenon, and, and the church struggled to understand its uh, implications. And Paul taught from the very beginning that a Gentile who believes in Jesus is exactly on the same footing with God as a Jew, and that there's not even a distinction between them. They're in one organism, one body, one vine, uh, one olive tree. He, he used all those illustrations. Now, he says in verse 11, therefore remember that you once... Uh, you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, 
made in the flesh by hands. I mean, the, the Jews call the Gentiles the uncircumcision, disdainfully. Uh, he says that at that time, meaning before you were Christians, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Now, these are all conditions that we're expecting Paul to say have turned around. Because it says, at that time, you were without Christ. Well, that certainly isn't the case now. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and the uh, strangers from the covenants of promise. Well, that's not true now. You, were, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. That's not true now. So all these are conditions that he's setting up to say this was your condition before you were Christians, but not so now. Now, of course, he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, meaning far off from Israel. Now, of course, Paul could have spoken about them having been far off from God, and that would have been true, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about how the Jews and Gentiles had been formerly alienated. The previous verse, he says, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were far off from the Jews in, in spiritual status. You who were far off have been made near. That is, the Jews and Gentiles are made near to each other by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. That is, he's the peace and the reconciliation uh, between the Jews and the Gentiles who have come to Christ. Who has made both Jew and Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the enmity between Jews and Gentiles, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. So, in other words, the, the laws that God gave the Jews of circumcision, dietary cleanness, um, you know, not touching dead bodies, not touching, you know, uh, believers and things like that, uh, th those are the things that separated Gentiles from Jews. They were far off from the Jews, because the Jews were very uh, careful about these things, and the Gentiles weren't, and, and the Jews looked on them with contempt because they were unclean. He says, God has abolished in the flesh of Christ this enmity that existed between them, so as to create in himself, that is in Christ, one new man from the two. That is, from the Jew and the Gentile, God made one new man. And this is, of course, the body of Christ he's talking about, which is one one person made up of many members, as he talks about elsewhere in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, thus making peace. Now, um, he's made peace, of course, between the Jew and the Gentile. Now, in another context, he might talk about how, you know, God through Christ has made peace between sinners and God, which is true also. But the context here started out with him talking about how you used to be alienated from Israel. You were not part of Israel. You were separate from Israel. But he's saying, now, that's what's changed. Now, you are not alienated from the Jews in Christ. He says and that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body. So that's the new man he's talking about, the one body, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, that's how far you want to go, but we need to make sure we notice verses 19 and following, because he now presents the opposite. He says, but now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Okay, so you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the promises and the covenants, but you're no longer strangers and foreigners. But your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, as the Jewish believers always were, 
Now you Gentiles are too, and you're no longer alienated. You're no longer something different than Israel. You are part of Israel now, the true Israel, the Israel of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, etc., which Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. So he, he makes it very clear that uh, having become Christians, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ is the cornerstone of this structure, and Jews and Gentiles together are part of it. It's one new man, one new building. One new body, and as I said, there's other illustrations like in Romans 11, 20, uh, Romans 11, 16 and following, uh, were one olive tree too, branches, Jews and Gentiles and one olive tree. The point he's making is that Israel, which is what the olive tree is, and Israel, which the household of God is, is now, it does not now exclude Gentiles. Gentiles in Christ, just as Jews in Christ, are part of the same body and are not uh, you know, are not something lesser. They're not a lesser breed without the law, as the Jews once thought. And so this is this is basically what Paul's saying in that passage. All right, let's talk to Terry from Texas. Terry, welcome. Uh, hey, Steve. I'd like Hi. to talk about uh, Genesis okay. 2, 24, okay. where it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I kind of see the one flesh as a uh, a wholeness or a uh, a completeness. Uh, and if so, does that mean that the single person may not be complete? No, I Would think you not. Speak I think not. I think I think what he's saying is just as an individual man or woman, when they're not married, is that person is one flesh. When two get married, they're joined into one identity as one flesh, too. It's, it's a little bit analogous, I think, to Paul's talking about the church as the body of Christ, how that we are members. We are individual members, but we're one body. Uh, now, in other words, let's just say you are uh, analogous to a, an arm, and I am analogous to a leg. Well, we're very different from each other, and we're two different organs in the body, but but we're but we're one. We're in one body. I mean, the, God does not consider uh, us so much, uh, you know, as, as being as different bodies, but we're parts of one body. And I think that the marriage unity is the same thing. The the man and the woman, just like many people who become Christians, together they become one body in Christ. So the man and the woman become one body. That is one unit, one identity. They, that, that's, that's a reason why, perhaps the reason why, traditionally, women, when they get married, take on their husband's name because they are now part of uh, a new body, which is their husband is the head. Previously, they were part of a body where their father was the head. That's why they had his name. Uh, you know, a child is born with the with their parents' name. When a woman becomes a wife, she uh, she changes her identity. She's not so much part of the solidarity of her father's family, much as she might like to be. Uh, that's the choice she's making. That's why the father gives his his daughter away. What's that mean? Why, why is he giving her away? Well, because she was part of his household, and now she's going to be part of a new household, a new a new organism of sorts made up of more than one member. But they are one body, just like all the members of the church are individuals, but they are one body. 
And so I think that's what what they're trying to get across. Now, let's just say um, you and I go to a church, and you're like an arm and I'm like a leg, uh, but there's no one there who is like, uh, you know, a neck or something like that. You know, well, does that mean that we are not complete people because we don't have all the parts? Uh, well, it may be that being being in a, a more diverse group, having more members of different types, uh, does fill things out more. Uh, it does provide more, but it doesn't mean that you're subnormal. If uh, suppose you, you you're in a church and uh, and you don't have any apostles or prophets or evangelists or pastors and teachers of the church, well, it's a somewhat impoverished church in some respects. But it doesn't mean you that Jesus isn't there, where two or more are gathered in His name. Uh, Jesus is far more important uh, in defining whether you're in a true church than if there's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, or teachers present. Uh, Jesus is the one who, who determines that. Now, obviously, a tiny little church with three people or four or ten is not going to be as complete an expression of the body of Christ as one that has a hundred uh, can be. But... Um, but that doesn't mean that the people in that church are subnormal Christians or substandard or something like that. And just like a single person, a man or a woman, is not substandard. It's just that once they are married, they become part of a somewhat more, a, a, a differently full-orbed organism of a family. Uh, the absence of that, of those additional members, doesn't make somebody deficient. Uh, but the presence of them does seem to add dimensions that aren't present in the single life. It's just different. Paul said some people have one calling or gift, he says, meaning marriage, and others have another gift, which he is talking about singleness. And, you know, if you're doing what God gifted you to do, then there's nothing incomplete about you just because you're not married, perhaps. Hey, we need to take a break. We have another half hour coming up. Don't go away. We have more calls coming. Uh, you're listening to The Narrow Path. We are listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, you can write to The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593, or go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds. Take The Narrow Path with you everywhere on your phone or other device by downloading our app from the App Store or from Google Play. You can listen to the radio broadcasts live or later from the app, as well as many other lectures posted at our website. Search for the app by typing the same name as the website, The Narrow Path, and enjoy the learning experience. It's rare to get such good stuff for free these days. Welcome back to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we have another half hour ahead of us taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, we'd love to talk to you. At the moment, our lines are full, and, you know, uh, you know, we only have a half hour. I don't know that we'll get through all these calls. If, if the lines uh, begin to open up early enough, I will give out the number, and you can call in. You know, I was just thinking about... Uh, the announcement that played at the bottom of the hour, I don't know if all the stations carry that, but um, it says, it's talking about the things available from our website, and it says it's rare to get such good stuff for free these days. And I was thinking about that. Is it really free? I mean, you don't spend any money because we don't charge, 
But I know some people who've paid quite a price <laughs> for becoming listeners to this program. I know some people who've been kicked out of their churches uh, because they listen to this program. Shouldn't be. Uh, it shouldn't cost anything. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you this: if you get something from our website, there's no cost to it that we will impose. But uh, you may pay a price uh, for for learning more than some other people want you to learn. I think um, that's. Uh, and that's all I have to say about that. Uh, let's talk to another person who's been waiting a long time, and that's Oscar from Mount Vernon, New York. Mount Vernon, New York. Good to hear from you, Oscar. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, concerning salvation, now, when Christ returns and finds a person committing a sin like stealing or adultery, does that mean that person would lose their salvation? If Jesus comes back and catches somebody in the act of sin, will that person lose their salvation? Uh, I don't believe so. It, I guess it depends on why they're doing it. If they are doing it, despite the fact that they love Jesus and want to follow Jesus and they've been caught in a temptation at a weak moment and they're doing something quite uncharacteristic of their general life and commitments, no matter what that sin is, I think Jesus knows his own. I think he knows who's committed to him and who's not. Someone might say, well, if you're sinning, you're not committed to Christ at that time. I have a feeling... That person hasn't thought through very much human behavior. Uh, Paul said there are things he hates, but he ends up doing. Now, he hates it, and of course he repents of it, as any Christian would. But, um, uh, but, but what if Jesus comes back before you stop doing the thing? That is, let's just say at a moment of weakness you fall to temptation and, and, you, and you start doing the thing, and then Jesus comes at that moment and you don't have a chance to repent. I don't believe that that in itself would uh, mean that you're not saved um, because, for example, I never disowned my children just because they fell short of being perfect children, as I, as I wished they all could be. And I'm sure my parents wished I could have been, too, and I was not. But uh, parents do not disown their children just because their children, in a moment of weakness or even, even a moment of stubbornness, do a bad thing. Uh, on the other hand, it is not impossible for a child who reaches a certain age to renounce their relationship with their parents, to run away from home and say, I don't, never want to speak to you again. Uh, that's a very different thing because that's a de deliberate choice to, to not be in the family anymore. And there are people who do that. There are people who, uh, you know, decide, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I don't want Jesus anymore. I just want to go do my own thing. Now, if the person who's committing that sin at the time Jesus comes back is caught doing that, of course, of course, they don't have their salvation, but not because they're doing that act, but because the reason they're doing that act is they have no interest in following Jesus. You see, the salvation is having a new heart given to you by God, which is oriented differently than the sinner's heart. The, the, the heart of the believer is to please and obey God because we ultimately love God. Do we sin? Uh, sometimes I'm afraid we do because we're weak and stupid. Uh, but being weak and stupid doesn't mean we have decided we don't care about our pleasing God anymore. It means maybe at that moment that desire to please him is weaker than it should be. But but we find if we do commit such a sin and we do have that commitment to Christ, we're, we're brokenhearted over it. We repent, and, and that repentance simply demonstrates that this is not really the thing that we, in our heart of hearts, really want to be doing. Now, there's plenty of people that when they sin, that is what they want in their heart of hearts because they're not committed to Christ at all. They're committed to themselves, and sinning is their, is their way. That's what they want. 
And that's, that makes a world of difference. That's why when you said if, if Jesus comes back and catches somebody, a Christian, stealing, uh, you know, will they go to hell or have they lost their salvation? Uh, I, my position is uh, that it, that in itself has got to be uh, teased out a little more. And God certainly knows the facts more than we do. If the person is sinning because they don't want to serve Christ, well, yeah, I would say that that means they're not saved. If they're sinning despite the fact that that it is really their heart's desire to please Christ, but they are very weak and, and fall, um, then I can be quite sure, if that is where their heart is, that they would repent after they have sinned, and truly do so, I would think, as if they're true Christians. And God knows that, too. And he's not going to say, gotcha, you know, I gotcha, I came back, gotcha, before you got a chance to repent, so you go to hell. God is not looking for excuses to send people to hell. God is looking for excuses to save them. Uh, sending people to hell, God needs no excuses for that. Everyone deserves that. What he's looking for, and desperately, is ways to keep people from being lost and and to reconcile them to himself. And so many people see God the other way. Many people feel like if the last thing you do before you die happens to be a, a sin, and you, let's, like suicide, let's say, and you have no opportunity to repent, well, then that's, it's guaranteed you go to hell because God got you. He got you, you know. Uh, you, you did the bad thing, and God didn't let you live long enough to repent, and therefore he, he got what he wanted. He wanted you damned, and you were trying to get saved, but he didn't want you saved. Uh, I mean, a lot of these people have the feeling that God really doesn't want anyone saved, but he, he grudgingly saves people that jump through the right hoop, that, you know, that don't do enough bad things and so forth. That's not what the Bible teaches. God is not willing that any should perish. He really wants all people to be saved. He wants all to come to repentance. There are people who will, and there are people who won't. There are people who are disposed to repent. These are the people who are converted. And there are people who are not disposed to repent, which are unconverted people. And obviously, if, if, if a person dies in the act of doing something they shouldn't do, whether they're saved or not, it doesn't depend on that this was the last thing they did before they died. It depends on what category does God recognize them as being in, people who are devoted to him or people who are not devoted to him. That's really the, the category differences. So um, when people say, well, if you could lose your salvation, how many sins do you have to commit to, to lose your salvation? Um, one, and that would be the one sin of apostasy. That would be the sin of renouncing Christ, of, of uh, giving up on being a follower of Christ and not wanting him anymore. That one sin will do it. On the other hand, if you haven't done that, there's no number of sins that can cause you to lose your salvation because God is willing to forgive, you know, obviously 70 times 7 is what he told us to forgive, and he certainly is more gracious than we are. He wants us to do it because he's that gracious. Um, you know, there's, there's no number of sins that God won't forgive if the person in question is devoted to pleasing him. But obviously, if a person is devoted to pleasing him, they're not going to be sinning very often. You know, it's going to be what they're avoiding. If you want to please God, you're going to be hating sin, avoiding sin, doing all you can not to sin. And then if you do sin, if you stumble, as James said we all do, uh, if you stumble, you're going to repent of it because you didn't really want that. You see, there's two, two ways your heart can be. It can be directed toward God or directed away from God. If your heart is directed toward God, you hate sin. That doesn't mean you never fall out of weakness, but you hate it. And that means your heart is directed toward God, and God knows his own. The other condition is your heart is directed away from God, which means that you sin and you don't care that you sin. In fact, you kind of like it. In fact, that's what you're committed to. 
Well, that doesn't matter, you know, how many good deeds or bad deeds a person in that state does. They're not saved. So you're not saved or lost by the number of sins you commit. You're saved or lost by the position Christ holds in your heart and in your affections and in your commitments. That's That would be it. Okay? I appreciate your call, Oscar. Always always good to hear from you, brother. Let's talk to uh, Slavic from South Carolina. Welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. Um, Hi. Uh, I got a question. Uh, this might be a dead-end uh, question, but, um, you know, the ending of this account always uh, puzzled me. Uh, it's the uh, the story of the demoniac uh, or at the at the garrison, um, mm-hmm. and uh, the way that it ends when uh, I I guess my question is was it was it Jesus' intent for uh, you know the herd of swine to run down the steep embankment and into the waters and, and drown or was that was that something that the you know the demons wanted to do and you know. Um, is it an assumption to say that once the, the herd of swine died, that the spirits were free to uh, and to demonize other human beings, or, or what? Like, well, you you're asking, this? yeah, you're you're asking questions that are never addressed in the story and, and may not be answerable with the limited uh, range of the narrative. For those who don't know, you're talking about the time when Jesus in, in Matthew eight and in parallels in the other Gospels. Uh, Jesus mm-hmm. actually encountered two demon-possessed men in the in, uh, in of the tombs, and uh, the demons were terrified that Jesus would send them to uh, the pit, to the abyss, mm-hmm. and they said, "Please don't send us there. Uh, let us go into this herd of swine that's over there on the hillside." And Jesus gave them permission. Now, subsequently, when the demons went into the swine, the swine went berserk, um, stampeded, and quite you know crazily or irrationally, because pigs aren't exactly rational beings, uh, they ran off a cliff, which happened to have, uh, you know, the, the Sea of Galilee at its bottom, and they drowned in the sea. So they, 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 they committed suicide. Now, I don't know if they committed suicide because they thought, I can't live with these demons in me, since pigs probably don't have rational thoughts like that, or if they just went nuts and ran into a place which happened to be off the edge of a cliff where they drowned. Now, uh, the, your question is, did Jesus do this in order that those pigs would, would be killed in this way. Uh, I don't think Jesus had any thought about the pigs at all, to tell you the truth. Although Jesus said, not a sparrow falls to the ground except the will of your father. Um, you know, yet, yet the will of the father is for sparrows to fall to the ground sometimes, and it is the will of God that animals die because they're mortal. And um, pigs, th- those pigs probably, if they hadn't died that way, would have been slaughtered probably within a very short time and served up as unkosher food to people. Uh, it's questionable why there were even pigs being fed there uh, in that region since the Jews weren't allowed to keep them. Uh, but anyway, that's all side considerations. Uh, the, I don't think that Jesus wa- had a special plan uh, for the lives of those pigs necessarily. His plan was to deliver this man. Now, it may be that the reason Jesus uh, accommodated the demons when they said, don't send us to the abyss, uh, sent us these pigs, he may have accommodated them when he didn't have to um, because he knew that their going into the swine would do something like this and would be a sign to all who saw it that uh, 
that this man had been delivered and these demons had gone elsewhere and had had this effect you know visibly to prove it mm-hmm. i don't know I, i'm i'm only guessing and it's not really part of the story to answer that question uh you asked now once these pigs had died did the demons in them were they released to go be in other people maybe that's another thing we're not told now it does mm-hmm. say in another place in matthew 12 jesus said when the demon goes out of a man it goes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it returns to the man and brings, you know, uh, seven worse with him. And the man becomes more demon-possessed than before. Uh, that wasn't the case here. The demons didn't go to waterless places. They, they must not like water. And yet, it, it must have been as terrifying for them to be carried by the pigs into the water as it was to be carried in the man into the presence of Jesus. I mean, these demons don't always get their way, obviously. Um, but these are all just ramblings because there's really nothing said specifically about this subject we might conclude that the demons once the pigs died were free to go off and inhabit people though it's also the case that the bible does not tell us that demons can just inhabit people anytime they want to because then everybody would be possessed uh mm-hmm. obviously even even unbelievers are not all possessed by demons it's a special kind of case that happens to certain kinds of people who are no doubt vulnerable for special reasons that we don't, they're never enumerated for us. We might have some theories about it. But but uh, just because the demons are not in the pigs doesn't mean that they would be free to just jump into the next guy they see. Because, frankly, even if those demons don't exist anymore, I'm, I'm not saying that's the case, uh, there are plenty of demons to go around to jump into people if that's possible for them to do. I don't think the demons can get into just everyone they want to, but... They may have gone on to inhabit other vulnerable people, or they may have, after being, uh, you know, uh, sent to the, to that, to the pigs. They, then maybe Jesus sent them to the abyss. We don't know. It's, it's. I think we we naturally have a lot of curiosity about these mysterious things, and one of the, yeah. I think one of the, um, uh, one of the characteristics of growing mature is spending our curiosity on things that matter and that God seems to want us to know about. Uh, there's lots of things we can be curious about that, A, God seemingly doesn't want us to know about because he didn't tell us anything about it, or or at least he doesn't care if we know. And the other thing is that there are often things that don't matter. Um, so I'm, I have to say there's lots of things like that that Christians can be curious about. And I've had my yeah. own curiosity about many such things, but eventually I've disciplined myself saying, if God didn't tell me any more, it must not be among the things that are a front-burner issue for him, for me to know. Remember, Jesus did say about another subject, it's not for you to know, you know, the yeah. times and seasons that the Father has put in his power. So it's, there's, there are categories of things that are not really ours to know. And, and if God hasn't answered them anywhere, then it probably is the case that that's not ours to know. I, I realize that you weren't being morbidly curious, but, and you're probably wondering if there is any biblical uh, information to answer those questions, but I don't believe yeah. there is. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's what I. Uh, uh, yeah, that's how I how, how I view it as well. And and sure. yeah, I just wanted to see if you had any you know any special insight or anything um, you know that could be drawn out of that story as well. But I think I don't. If I'm yeah, okay, <laughs> uh, if I may just ask an, another quick question, it's going to be short. I just wanted to know if you if you knew of uh, or. And he's passed away already a few years ago, but uh, he was a pastor. He was also an author, you know, wrote, wrote quite a number of Michael books. Michael Heiser? His name was, uh, no, David Pawson. I don't know if you heard oh, David Pawson. Yeah. I don't. I, you know, I've heard his name many times. 
and uh, but I've uh, never never read anything he wrote or heard him speak. I his most important uh, work that he wrote, he said, it was a book titled uh, "The Normal Christian Birth," not to be mistaken with Watchman Nee's and the, the Normal Christian Life. Yes. Uh, yeah. But um, and it, yeah, I just wanted to uh, get a second no, opinion I'm, on I'm, that book, and yeah. I'm I'm unfamiliar with it. Okay. Okay. All right, brother. So you're going to make up your own mind about that. You can do it. Okay. You can do it. Okay. All right. God bless you, brother. Thank you so much, Steve. God bless you. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Let's talk to Jeff from North Carolina. Jeff, welcome to the Narrow Path. How you doing, Steve? Great. Um, I'll make it quick. Uh, it's funny you said what you said earlier about um, um, listening to the show can get you might get you kicked out of churches. But um, – <laughs> I had that experience this weekend. I went to um, I went to a church up the road that I used to go to, but I, I only go to the Sunday school classes because I love the people there. Mm-hmm. Um, and an elder, I've been going there for about a month, um, and the elder, one of the elders, uh, um, came up to me and asked me um, some questions and concerns on some things that I, comments I was commenting about when we were going through a, a, a Bible study through Matthew. And he was saying that, um, you know, he was just wondering um, certain things that I heard from the show. And he was just like grilling me a little bit. And then I told him I wasn't going to the service, just going to the Sunday school thing. And then that's when red flags popped up with him. And he had all kinds of other questions for me. But that was Mm. funny how you said that. You know, some of that stuff does uh, rub. You know, sometimes sometimes people have. Sometimes people have gotten in trouble, uh, and we can't hear each other apparently very well. Your voice has faded out, and you don't know I'm talking. Let, let me, before you go further, because I don't think you can hear me, so I put you on hold, but I'll put you back on in a moment. Hopefully you'll get to a place where you know I was talking about. Um, a lot of times when people get in trouble for listening to the show, it's because they've adopted some view that they may have heard on this show that's different than their church. But in some cases, it's not because they've adopted any view but because they've adopted uncertainty about something that the church wants them to be sure of. You know, something like the doctrines of hell, where, you know, I've, I've made it very clear there are three views of hell. I don't know which one is correct. Uh, a lot of churches don't want, to, don't want you to be unsure about that. They want you to be sure of the view that they hold. And the, the very fact that you can say, I don't know about that, is enough to get you kicked out. I know of at least one case. So, um, so that's a sad thing. Now, I hope you're still there, Jeff. Um, do you, yeah. What's your question, brother? Yeah, yeah the, um, the question is, is I, I got um, the pastor's going to invite a man, um, and you might know him. Do you know a Jonathan Kahn? Yeah, I know who he is. He calls himself He's a rabbi. Yeah. Him. yeah, he calls himself a rabbi, he, he, um, and, and he says he hears from God, and, and he writes books of mystery that God reveals to him about America and all kinds of other stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Um, all I know is this, everything I looked up, he, he, he prophesies a lot of stuff and uses his books and sells them. And he's coming to our church and he's, um, he's going to get the platform. I already talked to the pastor about it and and gave him information about him, but he, he still wants them to come and everything. Isn't it wrong or to have a false, a known false prophet and a um, self-proclaimed rabbi. Um, well, there are, yeah, there's a number of things about Jonathan Kahn that I that give me pause. I will say this: uh, years ago, when he put out his book, uh, uh, his first book, 
the title escapes me. It was a very famous title. I know the title is just a senior moment. I'm old, so I mean, I sometimes forget things I actually know. But um, uh, Harbinger, it's called Harbinger. Um, I, I had to read the book because everyone was and said I, they wanted to know what I thought. And I thought, that's a cleverly written book, but I didn't see... I didn't see him using scripture. He was using scripture. I didn't see him using scripture in a way that struck me as exegetical or responsible. So, I mean, like many people, I mean, he's not unusual that way. I mean, he used scriptures in a very subjective way, and uh, and lots of people do. All I can say is my conclusion was uh, this is not a teacher that I'm going to learn much from, so I haven't followed his ministry since then. I know he's become very famous since then, and... Uh, but I, I agree with you. The fact that he calls himself a rabbi, when Jesus specifically said, "Let no one, don't be called rabbi," <laughs> he said, "Don't call anyone rabbi." Uh, it, it seems to me like that would be a real obvious red flag, not so much in our eyes, but in his. I mean, if he's if he's a follower of Christ, and Jesus said, "Don't let anyone call you rabbi," and so he just he does. He just calls himself rabbi. Uh, then I think, what's up with that? You know, I don't understand. I mean, it's, it'd be a real easy thing to not do that. It'd be really easy. I mean, if a person has a doctorate, they don't have to mention they have a doctorate. If a person is a rabbi, they don't have to mention they're a rabbi. Uh, and especially if Jesus specifically told people not to, you know, adopt these honorary, honorific titles. So, yeah, that, that concerns me. That concerns me there. And also, again, his handling of Scripture I haven't found to be uh, impressive. Um, his eschatology... I don't know enough about it to be sure, but from what uh, from what I heard from him, uh, the little I know, uh, I don't believe I'm on the same page with him. So uh, obviously he's not a he's not a brother I would have speak at any church that I was inviting people to speak at. But I, I don't know if he's dangerous. I mean, I don't know enough about him to say that. I'm not trying to sound the warning and say, oh, stay away from that man, because I don't know that that's the case. I just there are a number of things about him that would not cause me to put him up as an example. Uh, or, or or give him necessarily the platform to a congregation. But that's just me. I mean, your pastor has to make his own decisions about that. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, Jeff. God bless you. Thanks for your call. Uh, Barbara from Michigan, fairly regular caller. Hi, Barbara. Oh, hi, Steve. I wanted to comment. Last week, I think someone... How about if um, this, uh, Barbara, let me stop you because we only have a few minutes and we've got several people waiting. How about not a comment, but just your question? Because you always have a comment was, before your question. Let's it get was to just your question. a comment on a okay. scripture. Could you, call, could you call tomorrow then because uh, we're near the end of the show and there's some people who don't call all the time uh, like you do and, and who probably have questions. And that's what we usually want people to call with. So I'll, if you call back tomorrow, we can probably get, get to you if we call early enough in the show. Uh, let's talk to Matt from Yuba City. Hi, Matt. Hey, Steve, I was calling, um, you know, it's tax season, and uh, I've heard this argument before, or people just, like, making the comment about um, the reason I, or uh, why they don't write off their, you know, their tithes or, or their giving to the church is like, well, that's not why I, I you know, I give to God. And I, I just want yeah. your comments on what you think about that. I understand, yeah. I mean, when I was young, I didn't understand taxes because I was so poor I never had to pay any uh, uh, because uh, for, for decades I, I lived in poverty enough that I never owed any taxes and I never learned how that all works never claimed any deductions uh, or anything uh, 
but but I understand better, of course, now in my later years that I used to say, well, why if you're going to give to God, you don't need to be repaid. Why why claim it as a deduction? Well, when you claim it as a deduction, you're not getting repaid. Uh, the government's not going to give you back the money you gave to the church. Uh, what they're going to do is subtract the amount you gave from the amount of money they're going to tax you on. In other words, they're going to, take, they're going to tax you less. Now, if one of the greatest charities you want to support is the government, then, then give as much to the government in taxes as you can. But I can think of better charities, honestly. I, in fact, I, I can think of charities that do things with the money that I actually believe in. Uh, the government often does not. I also can think of charities that are better managed than the government is uh, by more competent people, by people with a conscience, and things like that. I mean, there are, there are places to give money besides the federal government, uh, which actually do good things with the money and, uh, and have good people, for the most part, uh, handling the money. And not, not very often, I mean, there sometimes are charities where people steal the money, and there's, there's bad people who run charities too, but that's why you have to vet them. The thing is, though, if you, don't, if you do uh, claim your tax-exempt deductions uh, from charitable giving you give, that means the government's going to take less from you, and that means that that'll leave more in your hands with which you can help charities that you believe in. And if you, uh, if you don't claim those charities, which are legal to claim, you'll still be giving the government more than they deserve because they overtax you anyway. Um, but they, but you'll be supporting the government projects that way. So, uh, you know, I, I believe in paying the government what they're due, uh, but they themselves don't believe that they are due the taxes on your charitable giving, so why give them more than they're due? That'd be my position. Hey, we're out of time. I wish I wasn't. I appreciate your call, brother. That's a good question. You've been listening to The Narrow Path. My name is Steve Gregg. We're, li- we're a listener-supported ministry. You can write to us at The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593, or go to thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. Let's talk again tomorrow.